Hey kids, let's talk about the good old days growing up in Idaho. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Growing Up in Idaho, talking about the good old days. These next few episodes, we're going to talk about the 1960s. There's a lot of things that happened in the 60s. Um, It was kind of the uh, launching point for the drug culture, the hippie culture, and a lot of the other crazy things that that we saw in the 70s. And uh, the Vietnam War was, uh, you know, about the mid-60s was starting to uh, become a thing. And uh, so those of you who remember that time as kids or as teenagers or even as adults will recognize these stories. I talked my dad into uh, to coming on and telling some of his old police stories. So any of you who have heard those or heard about them uh, will probably want to tune in on those. And I'll pull a few things out of my memoirs and hopefully have a good time recalling some of the experiences of the 1960s. So here we go. Growing up in the 1960s was a lot different than the modern times of this era. The 60s was the decade of rebellion. People still settled their differences with their fists, to a large degree. Rock and roll music was a big deal, and drugs were becoming prevalent and people were becoming messed up due to their usage. As a child, I wasn't really aware of those things. I was aware that my dad was a cop, and you know, that really scared the hell out of me. And he had to deal with a lot of problems in the city. Interruptions to my two favorite weekday TV shows seldom happened. There were exceptions. One morning, Dad came into the living room early. He surprised me. Working night shift, I didn't often see him until afternoon, when he would get up, say hello, and do his college homework. This particular morning, Dad said, Jeff... Do you want to spend the day with me? I have to do some police work, and we're taking a jeep out to the Lucky Peak Reservoir and look for a dead body. Never occurred to me what would happen when we found that dead body, but four-wheeling in an old army jeep with my dad couldn't be beat, as far as I was concerned. Dad and I and some other guy who worked for Ada County Sheriff's Department drove all over the hills near the big reservoir. I figured if this is what police did all day, I wanted to become a policeman. The man driving the jeep was a nice guy. He was a policeman and I figured he could be trusted. I could tell that my dad liked him, so I liked him too. As we drove down an old dirt road, suddenly a rabbit jumped from behind a bush and took off through the sagebrush. The man quickly pulled out his pistol stretched out his arm in front of my dad, and fired away. I could tell the man's actions irritated dad. Even I knew firing a gun across a person's body was not a safe thing to do. Dad chuckled, but I knew it was not his happy chuckle. My ears rang for hours afterward. After really cool experiences like riding all over the hills in a jeep looking for a dead body, I felt privileged and just a little bit higher on the totem pole than my friends. Those poor kids had to stay home 
and do chores for their mothers during my great adventures with my dad, the policeman. It never occurred to me that sometimes they probably had a few great adventures of their own. After spending all day looking for a dead body with my dad, he took me to the gas station and bought me a big hunk. As the sun set, I sat by myself under the lilac bush on the corner of our property and ate that big hunk very slowly, relishing every morsel. As I ate, I contemplated what a dead body really looked like. That day we were unsuccessful in finding one. I have my dad, Mike Hicks, on the line. We've been uh, listening to dad's police stories now for years. In fact, all of the junior high kids in the Brooklyn Junior High in Salmon, Idaho, and elsewhere in the school system in Salmon, heard these stories. And uh, I think they're worth repeating and recording. And so, uh, dad, if you'd like to give just a brief history of your, uh, what prompted you to become a deputy sheriff in Ada County and, and then just go from there. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, was living in Boise, mom and I, and we had a couple of little kids, you and your brother, Mike, and, uh, I decided to go to college and I needed a job where I could work nights so I could go to school in the daytime. Uh-huh. Well, it was 1960, excuse me, 1964, I started college, and I went and got a job at the sheriff's office, and my first six months there was as a jailer in the jail, and I worked the night shift, uh-huh. and then um, after six months, I I decided I wanted to be a patrolman and be in a car and patrol the county, and so that's what I did. I went and talked to the sheriff. And it was the Ada County Sheriff's Department, and the sheriff said, you bet. So I rode around with a couple of experienced officers for a while, and then and then uh, after about a month of that, I was able to take my own car and be on my own. Who was the sheriff? Full officer. Who was the sheriff at that time? A guy named Paul Bright was the sheriff, and, huh. and uh, he had been a policeman for a long time, and then he went off to another thing, and then he came back and ran for sheriff and was elected. Uh-huh. So uh, when you got on the road, um, I know that things have changed a lot since the early 60s when you started um, police work. Um, just to let our listeners know, what kinds of um, things did you carry on your belt back in those days just to kind of get the uh, things started off? Yeah, well, of course I had a, my revolver, which was a 357 Magnum. And just point of information, they don't use guns that big anymore because most of the time if you shoot someone with a three fifty seven Magnum, the bullet will go right through them and it may hit someone else. Yeah. So now most policemen around use a little bit smaller gun. You don't need a gun that big. But in those days, the more power, the better, they figured. Yeah. So, and uh, nowadays they use semi-automatics mostly. But right. In those days, we didn't. We used those big old heavy revolvers. And then I had, uh, of course, handcuffs and uh, extra bullets and a bullet pouch. And uh, 
had a aerosol tear gas. They called it mace. It was a little canister, and you could spray that in somebody's face, which I did once in a while. Uh-huh. And they'd take them right down. Most people at Norton Flat, you could roll them over and handcuff them. Hmm. And then I also carried what was called a sap. I don't think policemen carry those anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but everybody in those days had a pocket right down by their, on their hip, and they carried their sap in. And mine was a, it was a 16 ounce lead ball wrapped in soft leather on the, on a handle. Uh-huh. And you hit somebody in the, you hit them right on the side of the forehead, just above their eye socket. And that'll knock you out cold. Yeah. And that handle so, had a spring, didn't it, Dad? It was spring-loaded, spring yeah. It was a, the handle was a spring, uh-huh. so it had flex. And Did you carry a straight nightstick back in those uh, days? Yeah, we had we had nightsticks. We kept them in the car, uh-huh. and they were right handy. So if you got out of your car at a, a big fight or something, you'd take your nightstick with you because it was a very effective tool to disperse uh, people that were fighting or, or put a stop to the fight. Yeah, you never hit anybody in the head with your nightstick because you might fracture their skull, and that would not be good. Right. So what you usually did with it is you hit them on the buttocks or the thigh, or uh, poked them in the stomach with the end of it or something like that. Yeah. I I was thinking about my first time that I ever had anything to do with a dead person, and. What happened is uh, the, the Boise River runs down through Boise, and it's a, in the summertime it warms up and kids swim in it a lot. Uh-huh. And a kid tried to swim across the river, and there was a big eddy there, and he got caught in the eddy and drowned. And they, they called the fire department, and I showed up there just as the the divers were the Everybody, every department down in that country has divers that use a artificial breathing device. And anyway, they were pulling this kid's body out. He was about 14, just a little slight built kid. And I showed up just in time to help put him on the stretcher and put him in the uh, ambulance. But he was dead. He had been in the water for, under the water for about 45 minutes. Wow. And, uh, like I said, that was my first experience seeing someone who's just very recently died. And it was kind of hard, you know. A lot of people think that when you drown, you fill up with water, but that takes a while because all your muscles and all your insides have to relax to fill up with water. And this kid hadn't filled up with water yet, so when we pulled him out, he's air was coming out and the contents of his stomach were coming out. It was a mess. Yeah. Not a very pretty mess. And he turned blue. And Anyway, it was a sad thing, but an experience that all policemen have to have early on in their career so they know whether or not they can deal with dead people. Right. I found out I could. Now, you uh, were a diver, a certified diver for the county at some point in your career. Yeah, after a couple of years, uh after a couple of years, I we had our own diving school in in Boise area, and I went to diving school and learned to be a diver. I, you know, I was a deputy sheriff, which meant I covered the whole county, right, and not just 
city of Boise, but outside the city mostly in the, in the outlying areas. In those days, Meridian was just a small town, and now it's a big city, and same with CUNA and others, and we worked all those places. But I remember pulling up in front of a, I guess I won't use the name of the place because I don't know if that'd be a good idea or not. Well, yeah, I will, because I think it's closed down anyway. There's There was a tavern out in the country called the Cottontail Club, uh-huh. and uh, I, on my patrolling around, I just pulled up in front of the Cottontail Club, and just as I did, this woman come running out the front door, hysterical, and she saw the police car pulling up, and she ran over to it, and she said, they're killing each other in there, they're killing each other in there. And so I grabbed the radio and called for backup. But you have to realize if you wait around too long for backup, somebody might get killed. Right. So you have to go on in and do what you can do. I don't know how it works these days, but that's how it was then. So uh, I went in. And this one guy had another guy down on the floor on his back and sitting on him. And he had him by the hair with one hand, and he'd broken a a whiskey bottle off. And he was just getting ready to run that broken glass bottle in this guy's throat. When I come charging in there, (laughs) I come up behind the guy. In those days, you know, I was young and a lot stronger than I am now, for sure, and I ran up behind the guy and grabbed him by the hair and jerked him off of that guy and threw him across the room. And and uh, when he saw the policeman and he saw the badge and stuff, why 90% of the time, I don't know how it is these days, but in those days, a badge and a police officer in uniform meant something. Yeah. And uh, so the guy stopped and he was ready to quit. I ended up arresting both of them. And the guy that was on the bottom committed suicide about a week later. Oh. Reason being, his wife was messing around with the guy that was beating him up. So oh, anyway, wow. that's another story. But. Uh, I was driving, there was like midnight or later, I was driving down State Street there in Boise and went past a big grocery store with a parking lot and it was late. And streets were pretty much deserted, but uh, there was a a big group of young people, teenagers mostly, gathered around in this parking lot in a big old group. And that's always a suspicious thing. you got to do something, you know. So yeah. I pulled into the parking lot and put my headlights and spotlights on this group. There was probably 50 or 60 of them. And uh, got out of the car and said, what are you guys doing? And, and then the group parted like it separated and... In the middle of this group was a guy that was probably 25 or 30. And I don't know what had been going on for sure, but he was, he thought he was pretty smart. And when he saw that the policeman pulled in, well, he had all these kids that he'd probably been telling stories to. And he had to show how tough he was, which was a mistake for him. Yeah. Uh, he pulled a knife out. He had a switchblade and he flipped it out and the blade popped open. And got in this crouching position like <laughs> like those screwballs do. And a real knife fighter doesn't do that. Yeah. Sometime when I have time, I'll tell you what. If, if you see a guy that goes into the knife fighting pose and he knows what he's doing, 
he's not going to stick that knife out in front of him and wave it in your face. Right. Anyway, I was walking slowly toward this guy. I was probably about 30 feet, 40 feet. I don't know. And uh, I'd been a policeman long enough that uh, something like that really didn't scare me. Yeah. I had already had some experiences with things that kind of you, you learn to know what you can do and what you should do, and, you know. Yeah. So anyway, I <laughs> I pulled my gun out and kept walking to, toward him slowly, and I said, on the count of three, you're a dead man if you don't drop that knife. And I said, one, took a step toward him, two, and he could see that something serious was going to happen here, so he dropped the knife. Yeah. But that didn't calm him down much. He was still smarting off and calling me vulgar names and yeah. talking about how tough he was and what he's going to do to me and so forth. Yeah. By that time, I was about five feet from him. And I stuck my knife or my gun back in the holster and I pulled the sap out. The sap pocket was right there yeah. by your holster. So it's handy. I pulled the sap out and took two more steps and whacked him across the Above the eye, right on the forehead, like I told you. Yeah. And he went down like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> and I rolled him over on his stomach and handcuffed him, all the time keeping an eye on this group of kids. And that's what they were. They were kids. Yeah. And they all run like rabbits off in different directions. I've worked night shifts, and... Uh... Everybody I know, including myself, um, has some nights where we just couldn't keep our eyes open. You know, it was it was a fight just to stay awake. Yeah. Did you ever have yeah. problems out on patrol where you just, you know, couldn't, <laughs> yeah, well, couldn't keep your eyes open? <laughs> well, I was always able to stay awake. Yeah. I never pulled off somewhere and went to sleep. But one time I did, I would come off Five Mile Road and turned on to Eustick Road and it's a mile. The Boise Valley is divided into sections, and they're mile-long sections, you know, yeah. mile square. And I pulled onto Eustick Road and was heading down toward uh, a road called Maple Grove. And I fell asleep, and I woke up when the car went off the edge of the road into the gravel <laughs> and woke me right up. Yeah. And I, I traveled about a mile asleep. Wow. And that that's something that, Sometimes it happens, but I turned around and went back. There's a little town called Eustick. And I went back through the little town to see what I'd missed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there were several cars parked along the curb there that I drove yeah. past. And so good Lord was taking care of me, so I didn't crash into any of those cars. Yeah, thank That goodness. woke me right up. I was, I was uh, running the desk. What that means is I was operating the radio at the desk in the office, dispatching, you know. Uh-huh. All police departments have a dispatcher somewhere that takes phone calls and sends officers so on calls and et cetera. In those days, did you, guys, and, did you guys just trade off doing that? Uh, well, not everybody could do that. Oh. You had to have the ability to think quick and decide who to send and, yeah. and what. You know, if you get somebody hysterical on the phone, you've got to know which officer you want to send there and who's closest anyway and so yeah. on. Uh-huh. But, yeah, there were a few of us that took turns running the desk. Okay. Anyway, this guy called. It was Christmas Eve, and uh, 
he was drunk or had been drinking. I don't know how drunk he was. He called and, and then when I said, hello, sheriff's office, can I help you? He started cussing and screaming at me about what the dirty so-and-so's policemen were and so on and so on. So I just hung up on him because that's, you know, I figured, you know, he's a nutcase. Yeah. But he called right back. And uh, I said, you you know, you're taking up valuable time here and you're going to get in a lot of trouble. It just cool off. And I hung up again. And he called right back. Wow. <laughs> and to show you how dumb he was, I said, okay, what's your name? And he told me the name. <laughs> <laughs> can't believe he told me his name, but he did. Yeah. And so the day after Christmas, I got a warrant for his arrest. The judge was back in his office and signed the warrant. And I, and I come on work. I was working the, the swing shift, which means I'd go in about three. Yeah. And work till uh, late at night. And so I went and got a warrant for his arrest and come on duty. And there's a, another officer who was a good friend of mine and somebody I knew I could count on. His name was Bud Zarbniski, and I called Bud in, and we went out to this guy's house to arrest him. Now, what uh, charges, I, Dad? Just um, using the phone to annoy? What what kind of deal would you bring yeah, up on that? Yeah, your listeners do not want to call up the police department and start being a smart aleck, yeah. because that's a serious, indictable misdemeanor. It's not quite a felony. You can go to prison for a year for it. Yeah. Because policemen, especially desk policemen, don't have time to put up with that nonsense. Right. Something serious might happen, you know? Yeah. Anyway, so I knocked on the door. <laughs> Here come this guy at the door, and he opened the door and saw two policemen standing there on the doorstep. Yeah. And he turns and ran across the room, and across the room was a, a gun rack with two pistols hanging in there, stuck in holsters on this wall on this gun rack. Wow. Well, I caught up with him before he got hold of those guns and grabbed him and jerked him back down. And and uh, in the meantime, his mother and dad, who were people from Germany, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, except they were old people uh, who had lived through Germany in some hard times during World War Two and after the war. Yeah. And so policemen to them were like Gestapo. Right. That makes sense? Yeah. So they saw these two uniformed policemen come in their house and start taking their son, who was about 35 years old, down and put handcuffs on him. Yeah. And this little old lady, she was about five feet tall and five feet wide. <laughs> and she grabbed a big, heavy ashtray. Yeah. And come running at me with that ashtray. And took a big swing at me with it, but she missed, thank goodness. Yeah. And I grabbed the ashtray out of her hand and threw it out the door, and I gave her a big push, and she did a backward somersault and landed up against the wall. In the meantime, this guy that we were trying to take under arrest was got loose and was swinging and cussing, and he was completely out of his mind. And yeah. So I maced him with tear gas. Aerosol tear gas, it's a liquid. Uh-huh. And that took all the fight right out of him. And uh, we handcuffed him. And about that time, some Garden City police officers showed up and it was a big hullabaloo. And we, anyway, we hauled him off to jail. The judge gave him 90 days in jail for that little episode. 
Thanks for listening. Growing up in Idaho, the good old days. 